my mentor and uh, teacher, John Travis, uh, a number of years ago gave me instructions for how to give Dharma talks. He said, do your usual preparation and then locate your attention in your belly or hara, in your heart and in your body and let, let your thoughts self-organize. Wonderful practice. And I want to also invite uh, a parallel practice for you that, that I really was uh, uh, informed by from a recent retreat that I did with uh, Sokni Rinpoche, uh, who was here just uh, last month. And he invited people right before the talk began to be in touch with your deeper intentions with what really uh, most inspires you. It could be your bodhisattva vow. In the Mahayana tradition, it could be your invocation of bodhicitta. So I'll, I'll invite that as we, as we sit together. Let's just touch that deeper intention. And if you wish to, you can also be in touch with your body and your heart and your belly and let your thoughts self-organize as they, as they will. So uh, the theme I want to explore tonight is the th really the theme of the whole retreat. It's keeping our sense of vision and practice in the midst of conflict. It seems like one of the greatest fruits that our engaged practice can offer to our families, our communities, uh, really our world, are a set of capacities that help us to be present and skillful and wise and compassionate during conflicts, at least a good part of the time. <laughs> And yet we know that this is very, very challenging, that uh, in conflicts we often regress. It said under stress we regress. Our spiritual practice goes out the window. I remember hearing Ramdas once say, of course with my close family there's no chance of spiritual practice. <laughs> That's what he said. <laughs> But, but it really points to the way that uh, certain kinds of conflicts or tensions or old habitual patterns really make it hard to practice. And so there's both this tremendous potential of having that sense of vision and practice while we, while we are with conflicts, and yet it's, it's hard. And so what I want to really do is explore really three themes. Uh, first of all, why it's hard. And second of all, what really will follow from that, uh, some of the ways that we can practice with conflicts, some of the ways that are helpful for being with conflicts. And the third part I want to particularly look at, as it were, a uh, contribution 
that we would get from a Buddhist inspired approach to conflicts, which is what I would call uh, a non-dual approach to the transformation of conflicts. Similar to what a lot of you are familiar with as a kind of both end approach to working with conflicts. And I think it's that holding that sense of how to work with conflicts really in many ways carries the deeper vision of practice. And I want to uh, explore this talk. May I, I think it may have been Teja who said that uh, there may be someone else that we, in many ways, we uh, practice what we need to learn. Did you say that? I think Richard said that. Richard, Richard said that. And um, my own upbringing in relation to conflict, I would say, would be steadfast avoidance. <laughs> and this may, this may resonate with some of you. Um, but that I think I was brought up to uh, be conflict averse, to not want to be with conflicts. And it really has taken a learning process to be more comfortable and even to uh, find uh, energy and even excitement being in the midst of conflicts. Of course, there's always that moment of, oh no. You know, there's some, but, but it's really possible to have a different attitude. And I know from my own experience that, that it actually can be, and again, I'm sure this is shared by many of you, it actually can be quite exciting to learn to take conflict as a possible uh, opportunity for learning. So why is, why is it so hard to be with conflicts in our culture and, and for us and I want to give uh, five basic reasons. And actually the five reasons turn into ways that we can practice. They're, when we flip them, they turn into ways that we can practice with conflict. And maybe I'll just mention them. The first is that, uh, is that fact of that uh, the wish to avoid conflict is pervasive, as I was relating my own experience. The second is that a sense of dualistic approach to conflicts is also pervasive. The, the third is that when we're in conflicts, we're typically highly reactive, which is very hard to be with. And let's see, where is this? The, another is that when we're in conflicts, there's, high, there's typically highly developed unconscious projection occurring. And the, the last, and these are, this is not comprehensive, the last is that we get attached to outcomes. We get attached to outcomes. Yeah. So uh, the pervasiveness of avoidance, the pervasiveness of dualism, the strong tendencies towards unconscious projection, the reactivity that we find ourselves with in conflict, and then the uh, fact that we commonly get attached to outcomes. So, is that familiar? <laughs> so, so that when we get in conflicts, typically all or some of those surface along with maybe 10 or 20 others that I didn't even mention. <laughs> so first, a little bit about that sense of avoidance. And I, I mentioned that I, I uh, consider that that's been my conditioning. And it's really to, um, really, in my own experience, it's been connected with um, 
I think uh, j just a fear of the emotions or a fear of the mind states, the emotion states, the body states that one enters into. It could be, in a dis for me, I think a discomfort, in, again, in my upbringing with, uh, with anger, with, uh, with a manifestation of uh, lack of harmony. And so I think there were often efforts, again, you may resonate with many or most of us, to pretend or to hide the conflicts. Or when one got close to the territory of anger or um, strong views, to really say, let's go take a walk, <laughs> or let's end, or conversation over, and so forth. And that, that quality of avoidance is, I think, very deep in our culture in many ways. And of course, there are subcultures and cultures where that is not the norm at all. You know, I, I, I remember uh, I lived for uh, a few years in Boston in uh, Little Italy. That was not the case there. Conflicts were held right in the open with the windows open, with the whole neighborhood able to hear it. That was an interesting experience. I was a student then. <laughs> and, and so there are many cultures where that isn't the case. But of course, there, there are very strong tendencies. And, and some, of it, uh, some of it really, a lot of it is actually very connected with the second factor, which is that, that quality of dualism this pervasiveness of dualism that is so strong in our culture, so strong in our minds. We were talking over tea about the, um, really the pervasiveness of the sports metaphor. In competitive sports, typically it's structured dualistically. There's a winner and a loser, and the game isn't over until it's clear that we have a winner and a loser. And I think it's fairly striking how much sports metaphors are used across all of society. You know, probably, uh, I didn't watch the coverage of the Iraq invasion closely, but I listened to it enough to know that people were talking about game plans and we're really using the, a lot of the metaphors of sports. So I think that, that quality of dualism there is, is very, very strong, and it's not necessarily about sports. It's about a certain way that sports are constructed. I think, again, we were talking when I was a kid and we played sports, we even had winners and losers, but that wasn't the main thing. And of course, there are a lot of sports where winners and losers, where it's not structured that way. We could imagine. And so, uh, it may seem in sports uh, innocent in some ways, but it's really, we know that it's less innocent when we look to a lot of politics or foreign policy, because that dualism is typically also coupled, as it is in many conflicts, with a sense basically of me right, you wrong. And even a dualism that doesn't even permit the humanity of the other, you know, or that isn't interested in the other's uh, position at all. You know, our legal institutions are structured dualistically. You know, a, a sense of adversarial, uh, pursuit, you know, in which, again, a winner and a loser. And it's not the only way, obviously, to structure a justice system or a criminal justice system. It's done quite differently in other cultures. Uh, again, I could go, go on with this, but I think in our pop, much of our popular culture is basically about en the entertainment 
and the films are about the battle between good and evil. You know, think of the shows. I remember, I remember reading a review of a film where it was said that this film showed all the nuances, ambiguities, and complexities of moral relationships. It was a box office failure. And we see that we see that sense of dualism very, uh, very much, you know, in in foreign policy, where where it's either you're with the terrorists or against against them, you know, that even to criticize aspects of a policy can make one, especially right after 9/11, seem to be sided with the the enemy, and of course in that dualistic system, there's really no challenging of us being good and them being bad. It's an absolute kind of dualism uh, of that kind of right and wrong. Uh, and it's very pervasive. And again, obviously, it's not just our culture. Uh, one of my teachers in college was a philosopher named Alastair McIntyre. Some of you may know his work. And I was his uh, teaching assistant for a course on the uh, history of ethics. And he, I think, remarked tongue-in-cheek, we were looking into the question of, are there any cross-cultural universals in ethics? Is there anything that holds across all cultures? And he said from his thorough examination, the only thing that held across all cultures was that each culture thinks it's doing it, uh, things right and other cultures are doing it wrong. That was the only generalization that he found held at all across cultures. And so we had connected with that sense of dualism, of course, is the kind of projection, the projection uh, which is often highly unconscious. And we can find that when we're in the midst of a conflict, that strong tendency when we find ourselves in a kind of conflict in which we feel reactive, there we find ourselves almost uh, necessarily going into a polarized position of I'm right and you're wrong. You know, it's very hard to avoid that. You know, and again, I, I don't want to suggest that this is only the province of, you know, the right wing or the government. Obviously, among progressives and among uh, leftists, that sense of polarization and dualism can be just as strong. In fact, that's actually was the basis for the joke about being politically correct. You know, that, that uh, there can be just that, same amount of self-righteousness, polarization, all good is on our side, all bad is on the other side. I don't share anything with the oppressor and so forth. And, uh, and so we, we find that, we find that. And it seems to be connected with this, with deep unconscious tendencies to really project that which is negative on the other. Uh, Carl Jung once said that that which we don't know in ourselves, we tend to to project outward into the world and we encounter the disowned parts of ourselves which we've projected as demonic, as somehow evil. And we can see that. We can see that in ourselves. We can see it's very obvious in many ways on the, on the political, uh, political level. This is what Thomas Merton said. It is not only our hatred of others that is dangerous, but also and above all our hatred of ourselves, particularly that hatred of ourselves which is too deep and too powerful to be consciously faced. For it is this which makes us see our own evil in others 
and unable to see it in ourselves. And so when we get involved in conflicts, those mechanisms often are very strong, you know, and we, we, um, we have that, we project onto others, others project onto us in all sorts of ways. It might be uh, because of membership in a certain group or uh, ethnic group or class or whatever. And those mechanisms of projection almost make it impossible to see. As we, were, as we were exploring with Tija, I remember it was, uh, I think, Trinity's comment that there's something about the process in which we actually, these mechanisms of projection actually make it impossible just to be in the present moment and see what's there. That we have these, all these, all these uh, projections. We see the other as wrong, as evil, as, as less than, and so forth. And what this leads to is, is the, the fourth aspect I wanted to talk about, which is that the, uh, in, and this is really what we know most directly in our experience, that when we're in conflict, we're often highly reactive. One of the reasons, one of the obvious reasons why it's hard to be with conflict. We, we are fearful, we are um, confused, we judge others, we despair, we grieve and so forth. We, we are self-righteous. And we are, in a sense, taken over by those patterns. A lot of them have very, very deep roots in ourselves. It's almost like when we get in a conflict sometimes, our oldest patterns are triggered. You know, it may be some very old pattern connected with childhood in which we um, fear not being loved if someone says something a certain way about ourselves. And when we get into a conflict and that old pattern gets triggered, it's like our body and our minds and our emotions just get stuck. And a lot of conflicts are really characterized by those, by those qualities of stuckness. And again, at those moments, practice can just go out the window because we're stuck, we're triggered, our body is flooded. There's all sorts of biochemical activity going on that almost immobilizes us at times or paralyzes us or gets us into a, a fixed position. And we get very contracted and there is this very uh, almost rigid sense of self which, which appears, you know, as if, and it's really what this is about, it seems, is that it's almost that we are consciously or unconsciously and sometimes consciously thinking our survival is at stake. That's what triggers the reactive patterns. And, and you might reflect on times that you have found yourself in conflict uh, recently and, and actually follow that as we, as we explore the theme. Think of a situation that's been recent in which there's been conflict in your life. Uh, could be uh, within your own mind or interpersonal or your relationship to some community or social occurrence. And bring that to mind. And typically, if there was a quality of stuckness, there was probably certain uh, patterns of reactivity got triggered. And the last, the last uh, quality of 
uh, conflict that makes it very difficult is again when we are we get very attached to outcomes. We get very fixated on certain things happening. It makes it very hard to work with conflict at all because again it may be linked with those mechanisms where we think, oh my, I have to have this. It's almost like our minds think, I have to have this occur this way or my way or I die in a way. You know, or something in me doesn't, doesn't live. And I'm just trying to describe these. I'm not saying that these, that uh, in some sense uh, it's wrong to have these experiences. It just seems to describe what we experience when we are in conflict. And so when we look at those five dimensions, it really follows what's our practice? What's our practice with conflict? It really follows from those five. And so we can, we can look at our conditioning that, let, that tends to make us avoidant of conflict. We can work in many ways to cut through the conditioned dualism with others, with the world. And we know from really the core of Buddhist practice that it's really about, in many ways, not just the, the dualism of myself with the person with whom I'm in conflict. Welcome, welcome Chris. But also the very structure of this, of our experience, how we create a self, how we create this opposition of self and other. And so we can work with that. We can find ways to cut through the structures of dualism. A lot of our Buddhist practice does that. We can take back our projections. We can learn to be skillful when we're reactive. Big part of our practice with conflict, right? Incredibly central part. And we can also look into our attachments to outcome. So there you are, very simple. Just follow those five guidelines and <laughs> you'll transform conflicts thoroughly, become a great peacemaker and live happily ever after. So that talk will end now. <laughs> Not really. So, so how do we, I want to talk about those five just briefly and then, and then uh, talk some about uh, this more visionary way of seeing, seeing conflicts. Because in a way, actually, it's, it's like much of our practice, simple in concept, hard in practice, right, or hard to implement. But I think it is helpful to have that sense of guideline because my hope is that when we find ourselves in conflicts and we find ourselves stuck, something like light bulbs will go on and say, oh, I'm forming dualistically with my coworker <laughs> or something like that or, or Am I attached to outcome? Perhaps a bit <laughs> or whatever. So, so let's, look at the, let's look at those five. I was thinking that one of the first steps, in some ways an obvious step, is to uh, consider that conflicts can be learning experiences. And that helps, us, that helps us really cut through the avoidance and cut through the dualism. But that has to, of course, be more than just an idea it has to come from experience if it's to be really mature. And so the, the encouragement is to um, explore conflicts and to work with them and consider other ways of being with conflicts than we might have if we, if we have been avoidant or if we have been forming them dualistically. My own experience 
in being with conflicts, particularly with, with in a setting where there was some kind of mutuality of trying to work things out, was that the, the uh, relationships always deepen. And of course, any close relationship has to work with conflict in a way, maybe not has to, but, but often does work with conflict in a way in which there's, as, as two people work with conflict, there's a tremendous deepening of history, of trust, of capacity. I know for myself, both in intimate relationships and also in teaching relationships. If I can say, Masai, Masai and I have been teaching for seven years together. We have had some really, really good conflicts, you know? Delicious. Really, really <laughs> great conflicts, and we've worked with them. You know, we've kind of hung in there and stayed in there, and it's still, even if another one comes around, it's still, there's something in me that just clenches, right? It's, oh no. But there's also a part of me that says, I have some history. I know that this is actually uh, for my own good, <laughs> that I will benefit. And I think I could speak that, that there's really, that the way that we've worked constructively with conflicts has really led to tremendous amount of deepening of relationship and also tremendous amount of trust. You know, because we've been in those territories. And I think we know these from close relationships, work relationships or intimate relationships, that that is a beautiful capacity. And it's important to reflect on that when we're in a conflict. It can be really, really helpful. Um, from the point of view of our mindfulness practice and our meditation practice, one of the great resources that we cultivate is the ability to be with reactivity. It's the ability to be with painful experiences without, uh, actually without buying into the reactivity necessarily. The ability to be with anger and to not go where we typically go. To be present with, to be present with physical pain, with emotional pain, with difficult emotions, with difficult thoughts, and to just be present with them. It may be that the ultimate source of conflict is the inability to be with the present moment in various forms. And so we learn that. We learn to be able to be with the present moment even when it's hard. It's one of the glories of the training that we get. And it's why it's so crucial just to keep on practicing. We can be aware of our reactive patterns. And I, I often like to say that as our practice matures, we become connoisseurs of our patterns of reactivity and actually positively interested in them. You know, in the beginning of practice, we often say, oh my God, look at that, yuck. Let me get to the peace. Let me get to the sense of well-being. At a certain point when practice actually matures uh, significantly, we, we say, I'm really stuck. Oh, an opportunity for practice. Or even I'm suffering, an opportunity for practice. We get interested in the ways that we get stuck. And that's actually, I think, a turning point in practice. Practice can accelerate when we have that attitude. Not easy but I'm suggesting it as a possibility. Uh, and so we learn how to be present, we learn how to be uh, vulnerable 
both with ourselves and with others, to be with painful experiences. And those capacities, which Adrian and I will be exploring in more depth on Friday, are really, I think, at the heart of what we might call the individual capacities for being with conflict. And of course, it makes sense, right? What makes conflict hard? We get reactive and lost. How do we practice? We work with that reactivity. We also begin to, uh, I think, look at our attachments to outcome. One of the very simple ways to do that is to balance the interest in outcome in any given situation with an interest in process. And how is the relationship happening? I know for me it's been a very important, um, almost like a learning edge, to be in a situation where I'm actually interested in the outcome and say, I'm going to put all of my attention on actually having this process be good, as good as it can be. And kind of let, and as an experiment, because typically, again, my conditioning, like, like many of us, would be to be really just focused on the outcome. And so many meetings, or so many attempts to do things, everything gets focused on the outcome. And so a radical move would be to say, I am going to go in with the attitude, if not to, uh, to balance process with outcome, actually to focus primarily on process, especially if we, are, if we tend to be fixed on outcome. And then the breaking out of the dualism and the taking, the taking back of projections. Um, there's so many ways that we can, can work with the dualism. The most basic are completely obvious and simple, and we forget them all the time. In a conflict, it means basically valuing and listening to the other person. How many conflicts are we in where we don't do that? Again, obvious, but we all get caught in that way. And again, it's not hard to see why. We basically get scared. We get fixed on an outcome. Something happens, and we simply don't go through the process of listening to the other person. For Two years, uh, about 10 years ago, I was uh, chair of the entire faculty at the graduate school where I'm now about half-time teacher in San Francisco. And about 80% of my work as chair was to listen to people complaining about other people. And I would sit there and I would try to have good empathic listening and then I would say, because they were, what were they trying to do? They are basically trying to have me take sides, right? And I would basically say, my suggestion is that you find a good time to talk with the other person. That's it. And a tremendous amount of conflict work is all, that's all there is, right? It's like a lot of this is not rocket science. I actually don't know rocket science, so I'm, <laughs> it's a stereotypical comparison. But, but anyway, it's, it's very, a lot of this is extremely simple. This is, this is what I got paid for talk to the other person, or, or it's like, um, I remember in 1991, uh, Carolyn Cornfield, Jack Cornfield's daughter, who's now in her uh, 20s, uh, sent a letter to President Bush number one before the, before the uh, bombing of Iraq. And she said, 
She was six years old. She says, I am Carolyn Cornfield. I am six years old. We learned in school that it is important to talk with people before you hit them. <laughs> Please consider this as an option. You know. And it's that just that just that uh, ability to to actually connect to break that dualism. And again, something very simple, but something we can consider. Another story that was really wonderful that I just heard a few days ago was from a friend named uh, Kathy Cheney, whom some of you know. At least at least a few people know Kathy, and she's practiced a lot here. And I was saying, well, I'm working on this talk on conflict, and so we got into. She works with uh, like. Uh, five and six years old. So again, we, we talked about that. And she, and she told me these stories. She said that when, let's see, when people have, when two kids have a fight, um, she encourages them to say they're sorry. And yet she found that people will just kind of go up to each other and kind of say in an angry tone, I'm sorry, you know, sorry, sorry. And she said, the the big step was actually having them look in each other's eyes and to say, I'm sorry, and actually to make the contact, to actually make the contact, to be present with the other. And the words, of course, the words could just be said in an angry tone. And she said, it's amazing what happened, just looking at the other person and being present. And she kind of brought in meditative uh, techniques. Just be present, just look at the other person and say, I'm sorry. And Everything, everything changed. Um, and she said that people actually described that they moved away from that dualistic construction, I'm right, they're wrong. And the kids talked about that, that they were really had much more of a sense of being in it together. That at that level, this is, I think, one of the, this is engaged practice, bringing this kind of teaching into the schools to really cut through some of the roots of dualism early on. It's really um, inspiring. And just the, just the way of doing it, just by looking the person in the eye, and what it actually, Kathy said, it actually leads to is they act, she has a sense that they actually feel sorry, that there's an actual emotion there. And the key that she said is to have them be present with each other, look at each other, and count to five. An old Zen technique. So as we do that, I think we also come to take back our projections. It is really important quality. We come to see how often what we're reactive towards in others is some relates to some part of ourselves that we haven't recognized, like in that young quote. Um, John Tarrant, a Dharma teacher and psychologist, said, our ability to carry our own darkness prevents others from ha having to carry it for us. It's true. Interpersonally, it's true socially. I want to talk in the last part about this sense of vision that can really, uh, in a way, complement what I've ex just explored, complement these different ways of working with conflict. And it's to actually have a, uh, a sense of the way that this approach to conflict isn't just useful, helpful, often skillful, but it actually can connect with the deeper roots of our practice. And I think it actually connects with the core of the Buddha's vision. And you may remember 
that the Buddha often talked about his uh, teaching as the middle way. He characterized the middle way in terms of avoiding extremes, in terms of avoiding, we might say, rigid dualisms. And we can see all of practice as a way of deconstructing rigid dualisms. The Buddha once said, in terms of this middle way, anger, confusion, and dishonesty arise when things are set in pairs as opposites. Anger, confusion, and dishonesty arise when things are set in pairs as opposites. And for him, this discovery of the middle way preceded his awakening. And some of you know this, the story of him following a very, in a sense, rigid practice with the, with the ascetics for six years. And there was this key moment when he had been following these rigid practices, which in some ways were starving his body. And there, there are uh, statues, which I've seen in Thailand, of the Buddha in his emaciated state. Maybe some of you have seen these, where his, it's said that you could uh, put your finger on his belly and you would touch his spine. And he was emaciated. He was using the will to try to uh, gain freedom. And at a certain point, he, and he was avoiding pleasure. He was trying to uh, avoid all sense of pleasure following those ascetic practices. And at one point, he was lying emaciated on the banks of a river. And a milkmaid, uh, a gopi, came up to him and offered a bowl of, what, of something like porridge or oatmeal. And the Buddha knew that if he was following his uh, fellow practitioner's guidelines, he would never accept that. He had to follow the practices. But he went into a, almost like a dreamlike state and remembered his childhood experiences of being with very deeply pleasurable experiences, which were actually the experiences of the jhanas. And he went into this state where he remembered that and he reflected Pleasure is not the enemy. And at that point, he accepted the, uh, the porridge. I like to think of that, and this is something that, again, I learned from uh, John Travis. He likes to interpret that as the Buddha following what we might call a hyper-masculine spiritual path, using the will against the body and so forth, and then accepting the gifts of the feminine. What was really striking was it was shortly after that that he was that he awakened. And I think I, I like to interpret that as a kind of a uh, uh, marriage of the masculine and feminine. And the Buddha is like Jesus, an androgynous figure. And so it's a very interesting aspect of this, also relevant to like avoiding the extremes. And so the Buddha interpreted that as the middle way. Neither pushing away pleasure, nor pushing away pain, not being ruled by the opposites, not being ruled by the extremes.
staying away from the dualisms. These two extremes, the Buddha said, should not be followed. Without veering towards either of these extremes, I have awakened to the middle way, which gives rise to vision, which gives rise to knowledge, which leads to peace, to direct knowledge, to enlightenment. And I want to end with uh, an example which relates to the handout. Uh, for me, one of the most uh, well-developed pragmatic ways of developing a kind of non-dual approach to conflicts. And of course, it's quite uh, common to work for what are sometimes called both and or win-win approaches to conflict. And one of the most interesting forms of this comes from a man named uh, Johann Galtung, who I've had the pleasure to work with and study. How many people know Galtung's work? So several of you. He's almost, he's in his 70s now, and he comes to the Bay Area periodically, and I've, I've had the pleasure of working with him several times. He, born in Norway, actually was active in the resistance against the Nazis as a teenager. He, at the age of 30, single-handedly founded the field of peace studies. He was the person who developed the well-known distinction between different forms of violence, direct violence, cultural violence, and structural violence. So he was the person who brought those institutional and structural forms of violence to attention more, starting in the 60s. He also has this very simple model of, of transforming conflicts, which I'll go into some, and Lawrence Ellis on Sunday is going to follow up and develop the, that model somewhat further. It's a fairly simple model, and it really has to do with a conflict situation in which there are two poles. We might say two people with separate and different intentions. So if you look at this uh, handout and consider that um, this, is, this is a model of a kind of a conflict where there are two options, something like sports. Either one person wins or the other person wins. And that's signified by either, in this one, either A2 or A1. And the traditional model of conflict is that one side wins. I win the argument, I get my way, I defeat the enemy, and so forth. And he's saying that that is the traditional dualistic model. And I'm, as we go through this, I want to invite you also to look at, look at your own conflict in terms of this model, because I found this extremely helpful, very simple. Now he says that that is, the, that is the usual pattern. One side wins, the other loses. And it can be symbolized in either one of those, one of those um, resolutions, A2 or A1. But he says, in any given situation, there are at least three other options. And he says, someone who works with conflict as a peace worker or someone who is engaged in transforming conflict has to be very, very interested in these other three options. And all of them can be useful at certain times. One of them, uh, which is symbolized by three, is uh, withdrawal or avoidance. That would be in international type of conflicts, that would be a ceasefire. People would just stop fighting. They wouldn't deal with the issues necessarily, but they would take a time out. They would find a way to uh, stop the conflict. It wouldn't be resolved. And that's always an option and often very helpful because it, it, it can lead to less suffering. A second kind of option is a compromise. You know, so 
The example on the handout is two kids at the table, one orange. What do you do? Both kids want the orange. Some might cut the orange in half. That's a kind of compromise. And that might, that might work in certain situations. For Galtung, those all can be helpful if they take one away from the, from the dualistic dynamics which are leading to suffering. And a conflict worker has to be interested in that. But he says what is really important to do is to find a way in which somehow there can be a both-and solution. That there can be a way in which the, um, the needs, the deep needs of either side can be realized. And it's uh, the key for Galtung is actually uh, the imagination. Because often we can't really think of an option beyond the present stuck part of the conflict. So let me give a few examples and see, see how you do with these. So, um, okay, so I'm, I'm in my, I'm 50 years old and I'm going to a college reunion. I have a, a teenage daughter and I've raised her to value two things, honesty and compassion. I choose to wear an old outfit from 30 years ago in which I look completely wretched. What does my daughter say? You see, so this is, this is framing this as, a, as this uh, conflict. Yeah. Okay, one pole is compassion. Poor, you know, what, is, what does she say if, out of compassion, right? You look great, Dad. But that would be what Trungpa Rinpoche would call idiot compassion, right? <laughs> <laughs> you look great, Dad. Have a good time. <laughs> you know, by the way, give me the keys to the car <laughs> or whatever. And so that's one solution. And if she goes with honesty, what does she say? Yeah, you know, get real or, or whatever. And so there's, uh, you know, you, so you see how the conflict arises. On the one side, just the compassion, so-called. On the other side, just the honesty. What if she says, I'm attracted to silver-colored What's that? What if she says, yeah. I'm right, so what's, what's yeah, getting close. So what, what, this is like, a tr this is training for conflict workers. How do you take that situation? Because you, you can see how each of these options line up, right? You can see, you go with the compassion, you get one answer. You go with the um, honesty, you get another answer. You can also avoid it. She says, you know, um, she, what would avoidance look like? Gotta go. <laughs> <laughs> right, gotta go. You know, uh, hey, don't interrupt me. I'm watching a good show or whatever. You know, what would compromise look like between honesty and uh, compassion? Yeah. Something that doesn't quite, and what would full compassion and honesty look like? See, now you can feel your mind's getting stretched. Galtung says that to really work with conflict, we have to have tremendous level of imagination. Because what we're doing is actually going beyond our usual way of thinking. So what's a, what's a both end? Yeah. Yeah. You know, saying, hey, you look great. You look great. 
you look great in the, you know, I really, huh? Yeah, whatever one of his other suits was. Yeah. He looks so, you know, attractive. Yeah. Yeah, or some, something that, and again, it, uh, I think the key is the practice. You can imagine taking all your conflicts and trying to work with this model and taking simple ones first like this. So, Richard, you had one? <laughs> so, so you get a you get a sense of using this model. It's trying. It's actually and and you had Betsy. You had one that was getting in that direction. So how do you work with that? Another example. Um, I've just come back from a retreat, and I really feel like talking with uh, members of my extended family about the retreat. I go out to dinner with them. And I would love to share with them, but one of the family members keeps on making uh, bad jokes, and particularly about my retreat. <laughs> and, and I'm really tired, and I kind of, I feel stuck. I feel like if I was really, you know, really honest and direct, I would make a bad scene, and yet I, it's very hard for me to get my needs met. So again, um, a, the conflict appearing as two extreme options. On the one hand, I get angry, I blow steam. On the other hand, I just stop it, right? Um, for, so what does, um, and so that would, that actually might be, um, that actually might be the avoidance. What would a compromise look like? You could say, I'm particularly sensitive after, after the retreat, and even though what you're saying is not in depth, <laughs> yeah, so, so it might be trying to meet the needs, but that would probably, some of you may have had that experience, where would, that would very likely, for a joking personality, would just be fair game, right? <laughs> okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah, so see, you're getting creative, right? You're looking for how can you meet your need, and, and again, sometimes the needs can't get met. Situations are just such that, forget it. But let's say the situation admitted of some potential, and so you would think, how can I both be skillful, get my needs met, and not just create a further conflict? And so you're, the imagination is working, you see? Um, so let me give a, actually a real life example that Galton was, was involved in. You can see this model is very, very simple, but I worked with him for several days where we just practiced example after example of this, and it just really primed me to go into the situations of my life and look at them with this attitude of non-dual conflict transformation, because it really is a model, and I hope if it resonates with you, and again, we'll look at it some more on um, Sunday, and I think that, uh, uh, Yarrow, your presentation will have a lot of aspects very, very similar to this, that you're probably on Monday, right? Looks like. Yeah, we'll, we'll either Monday or Saturday. That, um, and, and Odin's also worked very much in this field. Uh, and um, maybe, maybe this retreat, maybe we'll have to see. Yeah. Um, a real life example, and I, I think I'll close with this. This, is, this involved Galtung, in which he single-handedly resolved an international conflict that had been going on for 45 years. <laughs> so let me tell you the story. Um, 
Between 1941 and 1995, there had been four wars between Peru and Ecuador. The wars were about a territory in the Andes that both countries claimed. There had been four wars, a lot of loss of life, thousands of people killed. Actually, the land had no resources and almost no people, but they had still fought four wars. After the last war, 1995, a number of people, a number of the uh, younger military people were fed up with the, the violence and the war. In, um, I forget what country took the initiative, but they, some of them hadn't learned of Galtung because he's been going to hot spots for 50 years. And they invited him because they learned that he was going to be in Colombia. And they invited him to uh, meet with both sides. And he asked questions and he worked with dialogue. Really, the, he, he, th he said that the qualities of a conflict worker are someone who can listen, who has empathy, who is skilled in seeing reactive patterns and looking for nonviolent ways to work with them, and who, and who is immensely creative. He says that the people who are best at working with conflict are artists, because their, their mind works in a, in a different way. And so he went to them, he talked to them about the situation, about the land, got a little more information. He proposed or I think it actually came out of the dialogue, but the, there was a both-end solution. Can you guess what it is? What would be a both-end solution that would meet the deeper needs? The deeper needs of each country would be for what? Security, lack of violence, and some, some degree maybe of self-determination. What was the solution? Neutral zone. Give it to another country. Yeah, vote on it. What, they, what he did, what both sides agreed to was a both-end solution where they turned it into a jointly administered uh, natural park. So <laughs> see, many, of, many of you are primed. Was it the artist? <laughs> Well, it was very creative of you to read my book before this talk. <laughs> and, so, and so basically they resolved, they resolved that conflict and it's held since then. That very simple solution of people being willing to talk with each other and use the imagination. And I think I will, I will end with a, an old story from, this is from the Jewish tradition, that really points to that uh, quality of... Um, of looking at a situation and learning to look at it freshly and find a middle way that transforms the conflict. And that really, I think that visionary piece complements the practical kinds of tools and approaches that I was mentioning before. So this is a story from the, about the 18th century from Eastern Europe. It's an old, uh, it's an old Jewish Hasidic story. So this was in a small town in Poland, and there was a uh, very illustrious rabbi who had a number of students. There was a younger teacher who was jealous. 
and he had fewer students and less status. And he came up with a scheme in which he thought he'd be able to disgrace the famous teacher publicly. He was going to ask the teacher a question. He was going to say, I have a bird in my hand. Is it alive or dead? I had a bird in my hand. Is it alive or dead? If the teacher responded dead, he would open his hand and let the bird fly away. If the teacher responded alive, he would crush the bird. And so it would appear that there was no way that the uh, famous teacher could succeed. He was caught in a very intense conflict. And so the meeting came and the younger teacher posed the question, I have a bird in my hand. Is it alive or dead? And the teacher looked at the situation with compassion and a kind of simplicity. And he said, really, my friend, it's up to you. And in that way, that creativity of being apparently in a dead-end situation and with that presence and imagination, finding something that pointed beyond the, the dualistic construction. And that's really what I think we're encouraged to do in our practice. It takes, I think, both the vision and it takes all those capacities I was mentioning to be able to um, work with reactivity, to cut through dualism in certain ways, to take back our projections, to look at it attachments to outcomes. I think that those capacities coupled with that vision, I think for me is this very uh, powerful set of capacities that can help us to orient ourselves around this field of conflict. So I'll, I'll stop there and thank you very much for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.